Welcome to Sober Conversations, and thank you for joining us today. Sober Conversations is the podcast that gets to the heart of addiction recovery by examining all the angles of the sober lifestyle and just what it means to be alive, healthy, and thriving. My name is Dr. Herbie Bell, and today's episode number 25 is a conversation with Dr. Mayday Levine Mata, Program Director at Sierra Tucson Hospital in stunning Tucson, Arizona. Sierra Tucson Hospital is duly licensed as both a special hospital and a behavioral health residential treatment center for addiction and compulsive disorders. Dr. Levine Mata is uniquely qualified to spearhead the leadership of programs at Sierra Tucson with her impressive resume, but from my perspective, because she brings so much focus to patient-centered care, holism, and heart to her work, as you'll soon learn. Let's meet this caring, dedicated woman right now. Dr. Levine Mata, you are on Sober Conversations. Tell us how it is in beautiful Tucson, Arizona. It is gorgeous. It's my favorite time of year where it's very chilly at night and in the morning, and then the sun just warms up the earth, and it'll hit high 60s today, I think. Um, and it's just beautiful. Oh, I can imagine. I've just been there twice, and I can just see those hills surrounding you and the luminal light as we approach this solstice. Well, I'm so honored to have you here with us today, and I would like to begin by asking you about your beautiful name. Your name is Mayday Levine Mata. Can can you talk to us about that? I think names are so powerful. Certainly. Um, I was born in New Hampshire on May 1st at home. I was a home birth to some hippie parents who had <laughs> walked, both had left their, um, they were pursuing their PhDs at Berkeley and, um, you know, decided to leave their programs as a, as a spite to the man, as it were. And um, so when I was born May 1st, you know, I, I joke sometimes that I think they were so stoned that they, they didn't have the energy to think of anything else and said, <laughs> let's name her Mayday. <laughs> but my father also comes from uh, Eastern European Jews. And so, you know, Mayday is um, the day for workers. And, and so there's a bit of a sociopolitical piece to my name as well. Very nice, really, really powerful. And uh, May's my uh, another favorite time of year, but I say that about all 12 months. So <laughs> that's um, a good problem to have. Yeah, and I remember the uh, red hot chili peppers. My papa was a kappa and mama was a hippie, or vice versa. So <laughs> that's right. good for you. <laughs> well, I want to begin by telling the listening audience that Dr. Chris Harrison and I met you while visiting Sarah <laughs> Tucson. A couple of months ago, and we're so impressed with your with your energy and, and presence, and then learning about the world class and integrated, multidisciplinary approach to addiction treatment that goes on at Sierra Tucson. So that that's the run up to this conversation. And by the way, Chris sends his regards, and he has contributed to these questions. I'm going to ask. Fair enough. Great. So to to start. Tell us a bit about your healer's journey and joining the team at Sierra Tucson and how it brings meaning and purpose to your life. Sure. I think, um, you know, I, I don't know if healing has been my calling, but I think community building 
and um, you know making connections of my own, but also facilitating connections as much as possible. Um, I've always been a joiner, you know, through high school, through college. I've just always wanted to be a part of things. Um, and before I was at Sierra Tucson, I was at um, a very large community mental health center here in Tucson and really enjoyed getting to know different academic programs and having students in our clinics. And we had about 19 different clinical sites, and I really loved moving from site to site and getting to know the different populations that we were working with. Um, and Tucson is also fortunate to have a, a really great umbrella. We call them the regional behavioral health authorities. Um, and so we have a really nice one that I think really is invested in community building and in the recovery movement. Um, and so when the opportunity came up at Sierra Tucson, I was really excited about it because it seemed to me to be the perfect opportunity to keep building community while from a very different perspective, a different population, um, but also the chances, you know, you and Chris noted the integrative holistic approach. Um, and I think as we all know, public health is so important, but often can be limited in terms of resources. So I was really excited to see what recovery would look like with, with, a, with a grab bag of modalities. Um, and so I think that's more than anything else what brought me to Sierra Tucson. Well, you were the program director there, and when I read the uh, the job description that you have, it just absolutely uh, blows my mind. And so let let me ask about that a little bit. In some of the the literature on Sierra Tucson's website, I read Sierra Tucson is a fast paced and rich therapeutic setting. I think you just said that eloquently. And so let me ask you this sort of uh, long question, but I think it's very important. As I have told you, my son was at Sierra Tucson in 2008, and so it was important to me when, when I made a decision or the family made a decision for him to be there. And uh, therefore, I read in your, uh, your biography that you're enthusiastic about something called client-directed outcome-informed processes and adapting evidence-based practices for community treatment. And as you know, I join you in that enthusiasm. And so will you elaborate why these things are so important for people like me to know who are looking for the right place for addiction treatment for their for themselves or, or family or loved ones? Absolutely. You know, it's really interesting to be talking about that today because I've had a week of um, some concerns, some bright spots. Um, but all around this very concept. And, and for me, it comes down to who owns the treatment, who sets the goal. And I almost always think it's the patient or the client or the member, whatever, whatever term we like to use. Um, and so client-directed outcome informs is this idea that the client directs the work, that the client says, this is my goal for recovery or treatment. And this is how I believe I'll reach that goal. And the literature shows that when we don't pay attention to that, the patient is likely to drop out and or not be successful. Um, even if they're mandated, this holds true. So even if CPS or probation has sent somebody for treatment, if we work with that person on what would help enrich their lives, um, we're far more likely to be successful. 
The other piece of this concept is checking in regularly in real time. So I think a lot of us are familiar with outcome studies that are um, you know, more and more being held by insurance or, or other payment systems as the way to ensure that treatments are effective. But what we know more and more is that if we're not checking in constantly in real time with the patient about how they're gauging, where, how they're measuring the treatment, we're not likely to be as successful. Treatment is successful. You know, about 80% of the time, people who receive treatment are better off than those who don't, which is, you know, often compared to a bypass, a, a coronary bypass as the level of success. So that's real success to me. Make, make that comparison again. I like that, the coronary Absolutely. bypass. Absolutely. Yeah, isn't that neat? So, um, and I'm borrowing stuff here too. I should acknowledge Scott Miller, Barry Duncan, and, and a whole bunch of folks they write with the the heart and soul of change, um, and just great articles and great thinking about this. Um, a coronary bypass surgery is about 80% efficacious. And the power in that to me is if you think about the peanut counter, so to speak, and the fact that they're willing to invest tens of thousands of dollars into a treatment for a heart based on an 80% success rate, and that is about the success rate generally of therapies and treatment. That to me said, you know, because there's a lot of skepticism sometimes about is therapy effective? Um, And so if we're on par with this medical procedure that is really expensive, um, I, I think that goes to show that behavioral health and recovery services are a worthy investment. Beautiful. And so I go to this place now, this sort of global place that addiction treatment is absolutely the perfect template for things to come with respect to our morphing healthcare delivery system. When Chris and I were there at Sierra Tucson, you know, we were giving the nod that something is going on here, this patient-centered reflective care and how it can be applied to healthcare in general, that you know, when I take responsibility for my own health, look to invest in things, mind, body, and spirit, that's when things are going to shift. And I guess that's what you're saying. Yes. And I I think the other thing I'm saying, and, and this is tricky, this is tricky for a program director. This is tricky for agencies. It's a cultural shift. Um, I I think I'm saying also that we need to shift a bit from the medical model where we're prescribing treatment. So this person is addicted to alcohol, therefore you must do 90 and 90. Or um, this person has bipolar, therefore you must take Seroquel. (laughs) You know, And, and it really shifts it to those things may be true, but if the patient hasn't bought in, it's not likely to be as successful. So with that grab bag that I mentioned earlier, it's definitely including the patients. um, Scott Miller and Barry Duncan call it their theory of change. And so, you know, I I think the the example I really like talking about is people um, who have experienced trauma. Some people who have experienced trauma just want to learn the coping skills to manage their symptoms. So I just want to learn how not to have nightmares, how not to have intrusive thoughts and how not to be hypervigilant. Other people feel that they'll recover if they tell their story and they're witnessed and validated. Um, so the idea being that it's, it's it, as much as possible in treatment, the, the healer should avoid prescribing the treatment and really work with the, the healee, if you will, 
to determine the best course of action. Well, it reminds me of the best psychotherapist I've been in the presence, uh, for whom I've been in, in their presence, and that is, uh, you know, they say very little. <laughs> yes. And uh, and I'm also reminded that this this um, this cultural shift or this shift in consciousness around someone understanding that it isn't a deficiency of Seroquel, it is a misunderstanding that I can generate my own uh, brain chemicals with with the right, as you say, mix of things. And, and what a beautiful thing for a person to discover. Well, I want I want to uh, to move into this next question about the setting where you are, which is which is just so fantastic. But what are your thoughts about providing addiction treatment in the least res- restrictive level of care in one's own local community, as opposed to acute residential treatment at a facility away from home like Sierra Tucson? Yeah, you know, Herbie, my guess is that you probably know much more about that tension than I do, if there is a tension, or maybe there's a better word for that. But I actually think it dovetails perfectly with what we just talked about, which I think it's likely to be a case-by-case. Excuse me. I, I think it's rare that somebody is having addictive behaviors to the point of needing residential therapy. Uh, residential treatment. Um, And my guess is that the people now who are coming to residential treatment to work on addiction are likely to have um, an extreme circumstance or co-occurring disorder tied to that. So, and I actually think that's one of our growing pains at Sierra Tucson that I'll be honest about is I think the you know, we evolved really in the 70s and the 80s. And I think at that point, we were primarily in addiction treatment. And I don't think we're seeing those pure addicts, if you will. Um, I think we're seeing a a subtly different population. Um, And I think for those folks, it can be very appropriate. And, And with regards to the least restrictive setting, I think, again, I would go back to what does the consumer believe they need. So I think some consumers do feel like, you know, I need to get out of my community because there's too many triggers. It's too easy for me to call my dealer. I know how to manipulate the situation. I know how to manipulate my support system. So give me 30, 45 days to pull away, get some sobriety, you know, learn some skills, sort of um, bolster up for the return to the least restrictive setting. Um, I think for some people it is just too much to do while in their natural setting. Um, so, so I don't feel too strongly about one or the other. I feel very strongly that people have a choice and are included in the decision-making around that. Sounds right to me. And I want to ask you about that transition, but first, uh, the business piece, um, do you see the role of residential treatment diminishing then as insurers continue to push for providing treatment in the least restrictive environment? There's that tension again, right? Yeah, I, I think that is likely to happen. Um, And I think that is okay so long it is as much a fair marketplace evolution as opposed to a mandate or a dictate by insurance companies. On the flip side, with the Affordable Care Act and, you know, the mental health parity, um, it might not happen as much as we think, given that behavioral services, you know, are likely to be treated similarly to to medical services. So I wouldn't be surprised if the two balance each other out. you know, in a sort of homeostasis way. 
but I think your guess is as good as mine. I'm I'm curious to see what happens over the next three to five years. No kidding. We certainly are forming and storming with lots of things in that regard. So let's ask about the transitional piece. I'm a bit of a uh, uh, freak in that very cool way. I think I go to uh, Betty Ford or someplace around the country just because I know it's where I'm visiting. And I, I love to be in uh addiction treatment facilities, because there's so much heart and so much transparency. And so how does Sierra Tucson prepare prepare individuals for the transition back to their their home environments? What what can you say about that? Um, I'm going to talk to two points. First is the work we actually do with the individual. And the second is is a great program that we've had around now for about nine months. So with regards to, you know, treatment and working with the individual, one of the things we do stress is um, getting to know and getting to feel comfortable with the 12-step community for whatever, you know, be it a substance abuse or addiction or a process. So we really focus on getting patients, even while they're at Sierra Tucson, to as many off-site meetings as we can so that they can overcome the anxiety and the newness. Um, it's also... You know, while I think we all hope that medications aren't necessarily long term, if the person is self-medicating for any sort of biochemical imbalance, addressing that early on. So, you know, really hoping that they have a steady uh, psychiatric level. Um, And I think the third piece is um, introducing them to all of the modalities. So for so many people, acupuncture is a great way to minimize anxiety or to address cravings. So introducing them and, and, and it's so it's really stabilizing and helping the individual learn what works for them in building a treatment plan. Even if they're not doing that treatment at Sierra Tucson, it's helping them sort of plan for the next one to three years. We also have family week. So we're bringing in families or other support systems, whatever the individual identifies as their treatment team, we're bringing them in and working with them about, first of all, it's opening up communication. So as you know, you know, it's disclosure, it's accountability for both for both sides, for family spouses and the individual. Um, But it's also saying, here's how you can help support healthy behaviors and choices and here's how, you know, here's what you need to do if, if your loved one doesn't make those healthy decisions and, and helping them come to terms with that. Um, the program that I want to talk about is called Connections. All of our addiction and co-occurring patients now are automatically enrolled in a year-long recovery monitoring um, service called Connections. And I won't get too into the details, but I'll say quickly, <coughs> excuse me. This has been going for about nine months, and so far, 84% of our folks enrolled through this program, 84% have remained totally abstinent. Nice. Yeah, it's beautiful. 13% have had one relapse. 3% have had more than one relapse, but they're all still engaged with connections. It sounds like you you have subverted that that, uh, old, old guard statistic. I I hope we have. Um, And even if we haven't, I think it's the start of something very exciting, which is, you know, I think the traditional 30, 45 day stay, people leave. And even with a really solid continuing care plan, I think people can leave feeling like it's such a harsh return into the real world. 
and sort of they're on their own. Whereas this is that liaison, that bridge, which is why we called it connections. You know, it's, it's the connection to bridge Sierra Tucson and all the gains that they accumulated to, to wherever they're heading to. And it's not treatment. So I really like that too, because these are coaches, case managers, they fill that role, facilitators, but they're not, they are all master's level, but they're not doing therapy. Um, they're really just connecting the individual to the, to the services they need and making sure that they feel comfortable and that they're showing up and that they have somebody non-judgmental that they can reach out to if they do slip or if they are craving. What a nice, nice thing. It's uh, such a beautiful metaphor for uh, the fact that we we felt so sorrily disconnected and isolated uh, on the other side of that. I want to ask you about this accountability and monitoring, but first let me just ask you, uh, Greg Williams has produced a feature documentary called The Anonymous People. Have you seen it? I have not, but I listened to your podcast with him, which I thought was great. I'm, no, I'm excited to see it over the Christmas vacation. Well, I wondered what you thought about that when you you mentioned the 12-step program. Do you think that it too, which is uh, sounds a bit um, sacrilegious, <laughs> is it evolving? And um, is the anonymity issue where people can come back and experience accountability and monitoring like they would for any chronic illness? Can can we uh, can do you think that something's moving there as well? You know, I don't think I'm involved enough in the 12 step community to know the answer to that. Um, from everything I can see at the Sierra Tucson 12 step community and those connections, it is evolving and I hope it's evolving. You know, I think anything you and I have sort of exchanged quick emails about this, the reification or, or getting dogmatic with anything. I hardly ever think is helpful for folks um, but I think one thing that's shifting at Sierra Tucson is we're starting to talk a lot about shame. You know, I, I think with the acceptance in the early steps um, in the identifying as, you know, hi, my name is Mayday and I'm an alcoholic. The, the beautiful part in the humility and the absolute surrender and acceptance and yet how to balance that without it becoming a shaming identity. So not so much that there's shame in terms of identifying as being part of the 12-step community, but, you know, we talk some with patients about when you say I'm an addict, what do we associate with that? And generally the term addict doesn't have great associations. Right. Um, but when you talk about being in recovery, boy, does it really shift um, just at that core piece of identification you know we started off talking about names and how powerful names are so saying you know i'm a person in recovery um and, and so how to balance that so i don't know if that answered your question or if i took it in a whole different <laughs> direction no you didn't i think that the direction is multifactorial and, and so i think what I'm talking about is there is sort of this buzz term called recovery monitoring, which includes drug testing and that sort of thing. And that's sort of shame-based. And I hear you saying that your connections program offers uh, compassion and uh, a fuller spectrum of, of our humanity so that people say, well, of course, we need to be accountable that way, as well as how are we taking care of mind, body, spirit ongoing. Yes, yes, it's really interesting. Um, so one of my sort of theoretical loves is this area of self-compassion. Um, Kristen Neff from the University of Houston or Austin um, has looked into it quite a lot, done a lot of research. 
And what she has shown with studies um, measuring self-esteem, which is based on external factors, you know, I have achieved, therefore I feel good, versus self-compassion, which is a general sense of self-worthiness and kindness to oneself, is that people with higher levels of self-compassion um, do better under stress um, and crave less. So I, I do a presentation with patients maybe once every couple months on self-compassion and how it relates to recovery. And part of what I talk about is it's this really, I think it's such a delicate balancing act in recovery because on the one hand, we celebrate lengths of sobriety. We celebrate active recovery, but how to do that in a way that if we have a craving or if we even relapse where it's not shaming, but we're immediately invited back into the fold and sort of forgive ourselves um, and only have as much guilt or shame as is healthy or motivating, you know, as opposed to that berating, um, which often can just lead to continued use. Well, this is the feeling Chris and I had at Sierra Tucson, that there is that environment, that, that sort of demeanor of the place that is, yeah, we're all human beings. Let's, uh, let's just do this um, in, in the most compassionate, empathetic way we can. Well, I want to ask you, uh, you know, since we are in this really wild and crazy and evolving, how are we going to address uh, or move from sick care to health care in the United States? How do you feel about this unfurling thing called Affordable Care Act or Obamacare? And how do you think it will affect addiction treatment? I have a lot of hope for it. Um, I really hope that it affects treatment um, in much the way we're saying, which is to integrate recovery. I mean, I think this is what your podcast is all about that I've really loved is not approaching treatment as this, um, you know, an offshoot of life, but approaching wellness and recovery as part of the very fabric of life. Um, and I, I'm really hopeful that through the bureaucracy, which is such a four-letter word, but I don't mean it that way, but through the systems of integrating behavioral health and addiction and recovery into the other facets of medical care, I'm really hoping, hoping that that will happen with time. And even here in Tucson and Arizona, I think we're already starting to see um, the products of those conversations of, um, you know, physicians showing up more to trainings about how to manage different somatic illnesses or, um, you know, how to work with patients with substance abuse or addiction um, and how to tap them into recovery systems. So I'm, I'm really hopeful about it. I think, of course, it has had a rough start um, but it looks like that's on the mend. So, right, and, and it, I'm sort of well done. It's uh, really moving in a direction that you just described. I was thinking about it this morning, and I I get a lot of this rhetoric. Uh, listen, Herbie, it's about the money. It's about the economic exper expediency, and I'm I'm saying no. You know what? It's really about the heart, and yeah. the, the money is a byproduct of that. So. We, we really can steer this thing in that direction, and I am hopeful too. And give, give me an idea then why you think addiction is uh, public health's number one challenge. Why do you think addiction and compulsive mood disorders are affecting so many of our families? I 
think it's probably tied to what I just mentioned a couple moments ago, um, the self-esteem and self-compassion area. I think over the last few decades, we've seen the shift to every child should feel special is, is one. Um, you know, so average is no longer okay. If, if I went to work and my boss said, Mayday, you're doing a good job. You're doing okay. You're you're average. <laughs> I, you know, not many of us want to hear that. It's really not okay to be average anymore. And and so I think we've our culture has shifted to one. And I'm speaking. I think I think this is perhaps a bit of a a class thing. But I'm not. I'm actually not sure that's true. That now that I say it out loud. But you know, where do you live? What car do you drive? What's your job? Um, have you created a family? I think we have all these external markers of worth. And I think we've sort of forgotten, um, you know, some of the Buddhist or Eastern perspective, you know, that suffering is part of life. And so I think we experience any suffering as bad. And so we sort of fight a part of ourselves. Um, And I think this is in so many different ways of thinking about human behavior. You know, I think of feelings as messengers. So there's no bad feeling. There's uncomfortable feelings. But even those feelings are, are there for a reason and tell us something about our experiences and about our world. And so I, I think we've gotten as a culture into this push-pull really, um, I want to say animosity, but I, I can't think of the right word, where we're fighting our feelings instead of recognizing what our feelings are telling us. And so I think it's created a very external sense of self-worth. Um, narcissism, we've, we've seen that narcissism is on the rise as folks go through college and take measures that reflect a, a basic level of narcissism. And with narcissism on the rise, empathy is on a decrease. So I think our culture has really shifted the, to every person feeling special. And then if you're not, you know, you don't feel well about yourself. Um, I, I'd be willing to guess, too, you know, this might be a little too sociopolitical, but I'm willing to guess, too, that some shifts in family structure. Um, you know, I'm a career working mom, so I don't think it's about women working. But I do think our families have shifted. You know, do families still eat dinner together? Um, how much time is spent in front of the screen? And kids, I mean, you know, Kids just have an inordinate amount of homework now. So it's sort of keeping up with the rat race. So I think all those things tied together. Well, you're reminding me once again, as uh, you talked about your program called Connections. And a few years back, I I was uh, inspired to write a little book that talked about us having difficulty because we lost connection with our common origin story or our creation Mm -hmm. story. And and that's why I think the addiction treatment community is so beautiful because we really are paying attention to that and saying, yes, and we are connected just this day and yeah. only for the rest of um, this experience as human beings. So that's just a beautiful cute. thing. Yeah, I love that. Well, as we finish here, because I know that you've got um, lo- lots going on uh, at Sierra Tucson today, Will you share a success story uh, from Sierra Tucson, if if you feel it's appropriate, that has particularly moved you? Yes. Um, You know, I I gave that a lot of thought. And and so I thought of a woman who came to our trauma track, and I'm going to call her H. Um, She was somewhere between the ages of 35 and 45, and she came with a pretty horrific trauma story. And she was um, drinking too much. She had pretty severe symptoms of PTSD um, and a lot of interpersonal difficulties. So she was really 
wearing down her partner and her family. I think people were just really exhausted and sort of fed up with her. When she came to Sierra Tucson, um, she continued that. She requested to meet with a lot of the directors about various concerns, things that she felt we had promised her and weren't delivering on, things that she felt were advertised that weren't true. Um, And so her first 10 days were really spent sort of spinning her wheels and and just, you know, I think in the, the old school term would be acting out. But to me, it felt like expressing her pain, expressing her disappointment in life, you know, and in what was surrounding her, that her needs were not being met. Um, and so what happened, what often happens, I think we, we get a lot of folks like that and it's, it's an expression of what's not right in their life. You know, if we don't get a lot of people who, who are really good at working things out and working with people, otherwise generally they don't need us. Um, and so the first step almost always is that she connected with her primary group. And so that's about eight hours a week of her same set of peers and her primary therapist, um, and just being supported, being validated, being heard. Um, we did to com- continue to meet with her to talk about her concerns and, again, to validate her. Um, I think part of her story was um, getting the right medications for some of her um, mental health symptoms. But she also started doing somatosensory work and EMDR for some of the trauma history. And about two weeks, so so the first 10 days, really turbulent, really upset. We, you know, I think it was a struggle for us to stay compassionate, to be honest. We were really exhausted. And then about 14 days in, it was as if a different woman appeared. And, you know, I think it was just all those pieces, um, a confluence of all those pieces came together And all of a sudden, her facial muscles were relaxed. And when she would see me in the hallway as before, she would either avoid eye contact or stop and sort of berate me for something. Now it was a smile. Um, And and that's sort of just that shift. I think her worldview shifted as her moods began to stabilize, as she began to feel validated and held safe. I think as she realized that we were not the enemy, we weren't screwing things up, but we were actually working alongside her. Um, And I think as that, you know, I I think you hit the nail on the head. She began to be connected again to people, to her therapist, to her psychiatrist, to her peers. And I think piece by piece, she was able to address, um, you know, her horrific story. And so then four weeks into treatment, she had family week. Um, So her family came and they had the chance to share with her um, some of the behaviors she did that really alienated them and but how much they loved her and supported her unconditionally. And, and, you know, she was able to share the same with them. Um, So by the time she left, she was truly a different woman. And, And what was really neat is that people who didn't know her would say something to me, you know, people not working with her would say, wow, you know, I remember the first week she was here. I I wasn't sure. And I think we all thought that she would leave at some point and just, it was such a visible change. And so she actually also ended up receiving the spirit stick, which is um, a peer group. The peer community chooses one person every week who really embodies and personifies the hope and the commitment to recovery at Sierra Tucson. So she received that her fifth week. And I think, and it just, I I think it gave 
that breath of this is why we're here to just about everybody at Sierra Tucson or who knew her and or knew of her. Um, so I think that, you know, when I think of her, I just, I have a smile on my face. I, you know, again, it's that affirming sense that this is why I do this. And this is why places like Sierra Tucson exist. Um, and it's just such an honor to be part of that journey with people. Well, that is the most beautiful story. And I think it speaks to this idea that homeostasis is sort of the sum total uh, is greater than its parts. And this idea about being informed by this morphic field of healing energy that you bring forward. It's not any one thing or one modality or one person that does something to somebody else. Uh, it just, uh, uh, that's beautiful. Thank you. Absolutely. So I'm going to ask you the best and easiest way for people to learn more about Sierra Tucson and its programs. Okay, this is very easy. SierraTucson.com Nice. <laughs> Come on, it's got to be more complicated than that. <laughs> Good deal. And I will second that because the uh, website is robust and just full of information and and easy ways to understand what goes on and how to contact real people. Well, Mady, I want to say that listening to your responses to my questions has been like listening to a beautiful melody and song, and I can't thank you enough for taking your valuable time and, and coming to Sober Conversations and sharing with us your heart and, and the great work you're doing in the world. Thank you, Herbie. I have to say it's an honor. It was an honor to be asked, and if I, as I've listened to the podcast, to think, wow, to be perceived to be part of this amazing community and dialogue that you started and are continuing. It's, it's just an honor. So thank you. Thank you. And I hope to see you and Sierra Tucson in some uh, future event. It's just such a blast to come down there and see what you guys are doing next. Absolutely. I look forward to it. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you, Dr. Levine Mata, for putting the face and voice of empathetic humanity on a caring, healing place, Sierra Tucson. Listeners, as Mayday pointed out, you may learn more about this world-class treatment center by going to sierratucson.com. Thanks again, Mayday, for the heartfelt work you are bringing to the world. As ever, I'm Dr. Herbie Bell, and you can find me on the web at recoveryhealthcare.me. That's .me or facebook.com slash recoveryhealth. Thank you for listening. And do us a favor by going to iTunes and giving a rating and a review because all great beginnings start with a conversation. Here's to the next time. And in the meantime, long-term recovery equals long-term wellness. Stay well. <laughs>